Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome and thank you for coming tonight. Are you all doing well? Hasn't changed since five minutes ago when I asked you when you came in the door? That's good. Uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Lord, you are such a good and a merciful God. And we thank you that we have the privilege to call you our Father because of the Lord Jesus and what he has accomplished for us through his life, his death and the cross, his shed blood and atonement for our sins, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to your right hand. Father, because of him, we are a part of the family of God. We thank you for the privilege that we have tonight to come together and to meet together, to fellowship, to pray together as your people, to study your holy word. And Father, we just desire tonight to have insight and understanding into the wisdom of your word that we might know it and apply it to our lives. So Lord, teach us tonight. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're continuing our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. And just as a reminder, the overriding question of the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, Kohelet, is where can we find gain? Where can we find Prophet and the Hebrew word that we, that is kind of the one of the key words of Ecclesiastes is yitron, which means gain or profit. Where where can we find this? And so, really, much of Ecclesiastes is an exploration, an investigation, a quest to find this profit, this gain. And we're moving into chapter five of Ecclesiastes tonight, and there are several topics that are covered in chapter five that continue that quest for Yitron, for gain or for profit. And so we have the idea of worship. And in the first seven verses, which is going to be our focus tonight, he focuses on true worship versus false or meaningless, empty worship. And then he, he's also going to address the, the topic of oppression, which he's already looked at before. Now a little bit more from the perspective of those in authority, government, oppressing people. Uh, the inability of wealth to provide true satisfaction. And then really just the insecurity of wealth, that it's unstable, it doesn't last. And so these are some of the topics that he's going to pursue throughout this chapter. And Graham Ogden says in his commentary, just kind of a, as a summary of all of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says, within a world marked by human folly, oppression, and material success, which fails to provide satisfaction, where does Yitron lie? Where does this gain or profit lie? So Kohelet in this section takes us further along the road of his pilgrimage in search of the answer. And so tonight we're looking at the first seven verses where he encourages us to worship wisely. And in verse number one, we see that the wise worshiper is cautious and reverent in the presence of God. And so verse number one says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Uh, the, this is really kind of an idiom, a figure of speech that opens this verse, guard your steps. And we have a, an idiom in English that very much corresponds to this, and that is, watch your step, right? And what does that mean? It means be careful, right? 
be, be cautious. And so he is encouraging those who are reading, who are listening to him to be careful and to be cautious when they go into the house of God. Why? Because God is awesome, isn't he? God is holy. He is infinite. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says, he is a consuming fire. So he is to be honored, revered, feared. So be careful, be on guard when you go to the house of God. And this could refer to the temple, could also refer to the synagogue, you know, when they come and they gather together and listen to the word of God. But whenever it is that you go into the Lord's presence, we should do it cautiously and reverently because he is our creator. He's our holy God. And so I think there's a lot in these seven verses that we're going to look at tonight that can directly apply to us. Even though there's a lot in here that, that contains a lot of Old Testament language, like the fulfilling of vows, there's a lot in here that can directly apply to us when we gather and worship together, that we do so reverently and cautiously. And so verse 1 teaches us that the wise worshiper is, is cautious and reverent in the presence of God. But we also see in verse 1 through verse 3 that the wise worshiper is quick to listen, but slow to speak. So one of the elements of true and godly worship is coming cautiously, reverently to the Lord's house, but coming with an open heart. Coming with an open heart to hear, to receive, and slow to talk, to say anything, slow to speak. So he says in verse number one, when you come to the house of God, go near to listen. So have ears that are attentive, ears that are open. Go near to listen. And this reminds us of James chapter one, doesn't it? When he says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I think in James 1, he's focusing on our interactions between people. Be, uh, be quick to listen, but slow to speak. And that's good advice, isn't it? That a lot of disagreements, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration could be avoided if we would just stop and listen to people instead of having to get our words in quickly. So he says, be uh, quick to listen, but slow to speak. But in Ecclesiastes 5, he's applying it to the realm of worship. When we come into the presence of God, listen, re- be receptive. And he says, listen, draw near to listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. What is, what is the sacrifice of fools? Well, one way of understanding it is that it is a worshiper who's coming to the house of God, bringing a sacrifice, but that sacrifice is empty. It's just ritualistic worship because it's not accompanied by a heart that is willing to listen and obey the word of God. So it is formalistic, ritualistic worship, bringing an animal to sacrifice but their heart is still far from God. He says, this is a sacrifice of a fool. And it reminded me of 1 Samuel 15, 22, where Samuel rebuked 
King Saul because King Saul jumped ahead, did not wait for Samuel, went ahead and offered a sacrifice. But what Samuel reminds him of is that obedience is more important. So in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel says to King Saul, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, to hear, to listen, to take heed is better than the fat of rams. This isn't to say that sacrifice isn't important because in the Old Testament, worship, God gave sacrifices, didn't he? So it's not to say that it's not important, but if you come and bring a sacrifice, but you do so without an accompanying heart and life of obedience, then that sacrifice is empty worship. It's just formulaic. So one commentator, Ian Proven, says this. He says, the sacrifice of fools is thus careless observance of religion unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul and enacted out of custom, peer pressure, or habit. There's a lot to think on in that statement. How many of us come to the house of God out of custom, out of habit, but, but coming with an, an unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul to God? something to consider. When we come to the Lord's house and gather and worship, are our hearts prepared? Are our hearts ready to listen to the word of God and to worship him? So he says, don't come with the sacrifice of fools, but take heed. And these fools, he says in verse one, do not know that they do wrong. And there's a couple of different ways of understanding this last clause of verse number one. Uh, is, Is it trying to say that um, they don't know that they're doing wrong or that they do not know uh, how to do evil. There's, there's a question on best, how best to translate this. And one way of understanding it is that the word evil at the end of the verse doesn't necessarily imply moral evil because the word that is used there is often used of calamity or disaster throughout Ecclesiastes. And so one commentator, this is Graham Ogden, says this, one way of understanding it is, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And this is his translation, because they do not realize that they are creating havoc, evil, calamity. They're bringing disaster upon themselves by their foolish worship, which is empty of heart, empty of obedience. And he goes on and he says this, injudicious action can create many a calamity. And this corresponds with Proverbs twenty-one twenty-three, which says, those who guard their mouths and their tongues keep themselves from calamity. And that, that's, an, that's a theme that's going to run through this whole passage in Ecclesiastes 5, is listening before speaking. And so the person who listens before speaking is one who avoids calamity. And so he says in verse number two, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. 
because God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. And this really matches with a lot of the Proverbs that we read in the book of Proverbs, doesn't it? That one of the characteristics of a fool is somebody who just talks a lot and just lots of words coming out of their mouths, but not a whole lot of meaning. Whereas in Proverbs, a wise person is someone who uses their words judiciously, cautiously. And when they talk, they do so with, with content, with knowledge, with compassion, with grace. So Proverbs 10, 14 says, The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. And so the fool just multiplies words. He's quick to speak, but the wise is not quick to speak. He is quick to listen, to receive. So he says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. And he gives us the reason here. Because God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Again, remember, what's the context of this listening and speaking. It's the house of God, isn't it? Guard your steps, he says, when you go to the house of God. So in other words, remember where you are and remember who you're there to worship. And remember that the God that you are worshiping, he is the God of heaven and we are just mere mortals here on earth. There's a great gap, isn't there, between God and us. There is what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. The creator is all alone by himself. There is the creator, and then there is everything else. And it's not like it's on a spectrum. You know, sometimes we think of a spectrum, like if I were to line up people here in the auditorium and say, okay, we can go from smallest to tallest, right? That's a spectrum. And we can go from smallest to tallest. We can line them up in order and say, well, this person is taller than this person, but we can't do that with God to human beings. There is this gap. There is this distinction that it's not like God is higher than we are on the same spectrum. He's in an altogether different realm. He is the creator. We are the creatures. He is holy and infinite. We are finite. And so he says, remember that and let your words be few. And then verse three, he says, a dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. There's been some disagreement about what this verse is trying to communicate. What does he mean by a dream comes when there are many cares? Well, it seems that what he's doing in this verse is he is communicating something that's parallel to the last part of the verse. So the last part of the verse says, many words mark the speech of a fool. Whatever he's saying about the dream at the beginning is parallel with that. And here's one understanding of it. He says, this is Ian Proven in his commentary. He says, it is as natural for the fool to be verbose, that is many words, as it is for dreams to come to those who toil pointlessly in search of gain. So many dreams corresponds with many words. Another commentator, Graham Ogden, says this, dreaming can indicate a fertile mind, an undisciplined action resulting in the failure to realize the dream. Do not speak rashly like the fool, for it is both laborious and as fruitless 
as dreaming. My, my, one way of understanding it that I was thinking of is uh, verse number three says, a dream comes when there are many cares. And it, it kind of reminded me of some things that I read in Proverbs where when there's a lot to be done, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of anxiety, the fool just folds his hands and twiddles his thumbs and starts to dream about, well, what might be. Instead of all this work and all these cares that I have to take care of, here, let me dream and envision this. That's off in the future. That doesn't have to do with reality and the work that I have to do right now. Well, there's lots of dreams. Fools can dream lots of dreams when they should be working. And they can also say lots of words when they should be silent. I think that's the idea here. And in verse number seven, at the end of the passage, he says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. So there he joins them together again at the end of the passage. It's just vanity. It's meaningless. It's empty. And so be on guard with your thoughts and your words when you're in the presence of God. So the wise worshiper is cautious and reverent when coming into the presence of God. The wise worshiper is quick to listen, but slow to speak. And the wise worshiper honors his confessions and commitments made to God. He says in verse number four, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. So fulfill your vow. This verse, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 4, is very, very similar to Deuteronomy chapter 23, which gives us Moses' instruction on the making and fulfilling of vows. Moses says in Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And this is probably what he means at the beginning of the passage when he says, when you go to the presence of the Lord, don't be too quick to speak. Whether in prayer or lament or praise or even in the taking of a vow, be careful with what you're saying because you're saying it to a holy God. And so we read in Psalm 66, verse 13, how important it is to fulfill vows. He says, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you, vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. And there are different reasons why people may give vows in the Old Testament. One reason they might take a vow before the Lord is in seeking his help, maybe in a time of trouble. But another reason is just out of dedication or out of worship, sincerity to God. But what the writer of Ecclesiastes is teaching us here is that when we make these commitments, these promises, these confessions before the Lord, we need to keep those. A wise worshiper keeps the confessions and commitments made to God. I was thinking about this 
and trying to think about how we might apply it to our situation. Because while the making of vows seems to be a fairly common practice in the Old Testament, and we see many examples of it, of people actually doing it and fulfilling those vows in the Old Testament, we come to the New Testament and we hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay, right? Meaning, just speak the truth. And whatever your words say, follow through on that. Well, what about the context of worship? Because that's what Ecclesiastes 5 is about. When you come into the presence of the Lord, into the house of God. Well, when we come into the house of God, when we come to worship, we don't necessarily take formal vows. At least a lot of Sundays, we don't. But even in the Baptist tradition, there is, uh, most churches have a, a church covenant, which is something that they're entering into, agreeing into with one another and before God. That's in a sense a vow before God, that here's what I'm committing to as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and worshiping together with these people. But I was even thinking about just week by week, our, our every day, our every Sunday worship before God, how could we apply this to, to what we're praying or what we're singing? When we sing a song like, Lord, be thou my vision, do we mean that? There are lots of hymns and songs that we sing where we're making promises to God. Just think about that. Or we're making statements about what our hearts say we believe about God. Lord, you are, to me, more precious than silver. Is he? Be thou my vision. Do you really want him to be your, to fill your vision, to be your all in all? And those are just a couple of examples. We, we sing all kinds of things all the time that we're telling God, this is what we want to do, or this is what we believe, or this is how we want to live before you. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, we're being foolish worshipers if we don't mean what we're saying there. And it would be better to not sing those than to sing them and not mean them. To sing them and not fulfill them. So he says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So a wise worshiper keeps his commitments and confessions before God. And then the last few verses, the wise worshiper is cautious and thoughtful before making a commitment to God. So verse four, if you've already made a commitment, you need to fulfill it. You need to keep that vow, that promise, that commitment that you've made to God. But verses five through seven says, someone who is wise is slow to speak and doesn't jump right in and make a commitment before God without thinking it through. He says in verse five, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And that's pretty much what Deuteronomy 23, 22 said. If you refrain from making a vow, you'll not be guilty. It's better to not make one at all than to make one and then not follow through on it. 
So the implication is be thoughtful and cautious before making promises before God. He says in verse 6, Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. How so? By making a vow or a promise that you don't intend to keep. Do not protest to the temple messenger. Who's that? Most likely the priest. The priest in the temple to whom you would have to come to make a sacrifice to fulfill your vow. So don't protest to the temple messenger, to the, to the priest, my vow was a mistake. Well, you should have thought about that then because now you've made it. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? And this fits in, especially this last question, why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? It fits in with some of the things that he's going to say later in the chapter about the instability of wealth and possessions. Because we can accumulate money and possessions and things, but he says they're very uncertain and they can be taken away. Here he says one reason why they might be taken away is because God is disciplining you because you made a rash vow and you didn't follow through on your commitments. And so God takes away the work of your hands. He makes all of your effort futile because you were not cautious and thoughtful in your worship. So he says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Kind of comes back around to where it started in verse 1, doesn't it? Guard your steps when you come into the house of God. Why? Because God is in heaven and we're on the earth. God is creator. He is infinite. We are finite. And he says, therefore, fear God, reverence God. And in this short phrase, he is hinting at what the whole conclusion to his whole quest is. Because we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, and this is what he says. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So he's still in the quest. Where can we find this gain? Where can we find this profit? But already in the middle of the quest, he hints at, here's what we ought to be seeking. Here's how we ought to be living. To fear, to reverence the Lord. And so this passage, these seven verses that we've looked at tonight are about the difference between empty, vain, meaningless worship and worship that is honoring to God, worship that is full, worship that is open and receptive to the word of God, worship that is thoughtful, worship that keeps its covenants and commitments before God. And so he makes a contrast between the fool who says lots of things and makes a lot of promises in the presence of God, but doesn't fulfill any of them. He may even bring a sacrifice, but it's empty and it's meaningless because his heart is not listening. He's just making rash statements before God that he doesn't intend to follow through with. But the wise worshiper is someone who recognizes where he is. He's in the presence of God. 
he is quick to listen to the word of God. And he's slow to speak, only speaking when his heart is fully engaged and fully uh, intending to follow through on what the mouse says. And so we as Christians, we as children of God, we should be seeking to uh, worship wisely, shouldn't we? And worshiping wisely means worshiping with a heart, listening and attentive to the word of God. Worshiping with hearts that desire not just to hear, but to obey. Referencing again, James 1, that the person who hears but doesn't obey is just deceiving themselves. So a wise person listens, but a wise person listens with the intent to obey. A a wise person is slow to speak only speaking when their heart is fully committed to the words that they say. And so there is content, there is worship, there is commitment, there is love, there is the full giving of oneself. As Paul would say in Romans 12, we are now a living sacrifice to God. So there's the giving of the whole self to God. That is wise worship. And so the wise teacher is saying, Don't be a fool who worships, but be wise in your worship. And certainly as those of us who have been changed by the grace of God, our hearts should be transformed. As Paul says in Romans 12, that our our minds, our thinking should be transformed, conformed to the image of Christ, offering our whole selves in worship. And so may God help us to be wise worshipers. We pray with me tonight. Father in heaven, thank you for the word that we've read and thought about tonight. There's much here for us to think about, to contemplate. Lord, I pray that you would help us when we come into your presence to do so thoughtfully, to do so in reverence, that when we sing, that we're genuinely thinking about and committing ourselves to the words that we say and sing that when we pray to you, Father, we are doing so remembering who we are speaking to and that when we pray, we are giving you words that we have considered, thought about and doing so out of genuine love and reverence for you. Father, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. Thank you that you have invited us in to your presence, to worship you. And now, Lord, may we, having been given this great gift to come into your presence, may we worship you in spirit and in truth, acceptably in fear, because you are a consuming fire. You are an awesome God. So, Father, draw us close to you in true and genuine worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.